Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Welcome, Jim. Thought we'd talk a little bit about the military intelligence failures over the uh, Ukraine war. What did uh, the intelligence entities get wrong? Well, they didn't, uh, they didn't take into account the known problems within the Russian armed forces. They didn't take into account what they knew that Ukraine had been doing since 2014, where they'd been modernizing. They'd been, we'd already been shipping them in, you know, the, uh, uh, the new guided missiles, uh, you know, the anti-tank missiles and other weapons, uh, you know, before the Russians invaded. And the Ukrainians uh, correctly predicted when the invasion would come and how it would operate, you know, with the battalion task groups. Uh, so I think that might have been more a case of covering your butt. Uh, you know, the intelligence agencies have always uh, worked for the commander in chief or the head of state, as it were. And uh, in the United States, you basically get your commander's guidance, as it were. <laughs> That's how it's referred to in the military. But basically, you look for well, what the what does the boss want us to say? And of course, this, the way the CIA handles that, I I found this out during the you know before the Cold War ended, was that when they were caught in a situation like this, they basically put the truth in the footnotes. The main text said what you know it was the official you know report, uh, but the rose footnotes. They basically laid out, laid out what was really going on, disguised as an alternative, you know, interpretation. Uh, it's interesting that almost all the uh, the Western intelligence agencies uh, were in lockstep. Now that that's another that's another cover your butt, you know, uh, uh, attitude that is not only present in the intelligence uh, community but also in the news community. When I was working for NBC in the, uh, in the 1991 Gulf War, uh, Iraq War, uh, they, were, they, were, they were, you know, uh, <clears throat> asking for updates on my, my analysis of, of new information coming in. And one of the bits of information came in was that a Marine artillery unit was in the so-and-so, I forget the name of the oil field. So they had paper maps in those days, maybe they still do. We pulled that out, quickly looked at it. And this was way into, you know, Kuwait. And, uh, and I reported back, he says, well, if that's where the artillery is, the Marine infantry is even further in because even the Marines operate like that. They do not lead with their artillery. And the guy said, okay. And they eventually went with what everybody else was saying was that, well, yes, you know, uh, the artillery's there, uh, but we're not sure. Of course, later it turned out that's exactly what happened. The report they got was right. You know, it's hard to mistake that you're in an oil field, and there were only so many oil fields in that direction. Uh, but nobody wanted to stick their necks out. It was easier to have a, a mass delusion uh, than somebody uh, sticking their neck out and being right and everybody else wrong. Professional courtesy. Who knows? Speaking of professional courtesies, another one which might have uh, had some impact here was that the, during the Cold War, and we found this out after the Cold War ended, uh, was that it wasn't just the uh, United States 
that was pumping up, you know, the abilities of the Soviets. But the Soviets were pumping up the abilities of the Americans. Uh, and that, led to, that, that basically perpetuated the arms race. Um, and uh, we couldn't confirm that until after it was over. And, uh, you know, the CIA uh, people, usually you know, retired CIA people who, uh, who worked on it. I knew one guy who was the head of the, the uh, Warsaw Pact, you know, division, as it were, before he retired, went into uh, think tank business. He went over there with his wife, and uh, he and uh, and uh, and he also invited the uh, the Russian expert on uh, military simulations, and uh, he neither of these guys could visit the other's country <laughs> during the Cold War, but the the Russian guy, and Al, my friend Reem, he spoke very good Russian, uh, and they asked him about that, and he says, well, no, uh, it was basically uh, uh, forbidden. To uh, to give a, an accurate assessment of the Americans, uh, and and occasionally a new guy would do such a thing, and he would be exiled off to one of the you know the uh, the secret cities, you know the gilded cage where they put scientists and other people they couldn't rely on politically, um, but in the United States it was it was more or less of an open secret, you know I I published I published that analysis in the late. 1987, I think, was the edition of How to Make War. And I asked the agency about that, and they said, well, no, nah, they're just saying, you know, another excitable off-base civilian. And, of course, you know, I turned out to be right because I was simply going on the facts. I mean, I, I consulted a lot of people on Wall Street. I said, look, it doesn't look like their economy is doing too well. Uh, the oil price is going down. Uh, they're basically, they can't borrow money. They can't import food. Uh, this has got this has got to cause unrest and God knows what. No, I didn't predict that the Soviet Union would collapse, but that's how bad it was. You know, you never want to you never want to assume that things are as, as bad as they 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 could be. But in Russia's case, that was true. So in Ukraine, nobody wanted to be use the information they had. Plus, there was a feeling that the Russians had overwhelming force, and even with their 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 how should I put it? Their haphazard maintenance of their vehicles, the, uh, the the large number of conscripts, which technically couldn't go into Ukraine uh, or couldn't go into a foreign country, and uh, initially the Russians tried to get around that by not telling them they were going into Ukraine, and then saying, "Well, it's not really an invasion of a foreign territory. We're simply uh, reuniting Ukraine with Mother Russia." Either of those things held water, and, and of course the. Uh, that was the end of their, uh, their uh, or the beginning, so to speak, of their manpower catastrophe. They can't get troops anymore. Uh, but the, um, you know, the, the, West, the Western leaders, I mean, the guys on the ground in the Ukraine who were basically training the Ukrainians, discussing tactics with them, intelligence and what have you, they realized that, you know, the, the uh, Ukrainians got religion, so to speak, after 2014. Before that, a majority of Ukrainians were not really intent on joining NATO. They wanted to join the European Union, but they knew that joining NATO would aggravate you know, the Russians. But once the Russians invaded, bingo, 70% wanted to join NATO. And that's still the attitude. But they were working on you know, becoming NATO compatible you know, for the last five, previous five years. Uh, the uh, Western intelligence agencies also believe that Crimea and and half of the Donbass that the Russians had taken in 2014 before the unexpected resistance of the Ukrainians showed up, uh, 
was not, you know, uh, was basically quiet, indicating that the, the Ukrainians, once occupied, uh, would not fight. What they didn't realize, it's obvious now because the, the, uh, the resistance, as it were, inside of Crimea and the Donbass is really getting out of hand for the Russians. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Ukrainians asked some of the, the, the newly <laughs> militaristic, as it were, or aggressive uh, residents, you know, why now? It's just, well, we were waiting for you to attack. You know, we're not going to rise up. You know, they had visions of what happened to Warsaw during World War II. When the uh, the Warsaw rose up in rebellion, when the Russians were coming, were approaching Warsaw, and at that point Stalin said, "No, stop. Let's wait for a while and rest our troops." And of course, the uh, the resistance got massacred, which is exactly what the Russians wanted. And, and technically, it wasn't on their hands. Said, well, our troops were exhausted. You know, we had to pause before we went in uh, to fight all these SS and, and police battalions, what have you, uh, because they would be too much for us. So you know, politics doesn't really change. Uh, and the Russians are now finding themselves uh, having a hard time even hanging on to their, uh, uh, to their uh, occupied territories, the territories they've occupied since 2014. Uh, now, you've still got the problem in the United States because a lot of, especially politicians, are advising that, well, no, we shouldn't, shouldn't give the, the uh, Ukrainians everything they're requesting. Even though they obviously know what they need, they've always been they've always been right, and now they want a, a whole lot more high Mars missiles, and they want the Attackums missile, which is you can carry one of those per you know high Mars, and it has a range of three hundred kilometers. Uh, you don't, you don't have to be a math expert to calculate that if they get high Mars uh, Attackums in high Mars, uh, they're going to basically make no place in occupied Ukraine uh, safe for the Russians. Now, the Russians are already taking this as a given that it's eventually going to come in. And they're basically withdrawing uh, valuable assets, you know, like like their ships, you know, out of Sebastopol. Because, you know, once HIMARS comes in, once the TACMS comes in, you know, boom, boom, boom. Uh, there won't be any safe rear area anymore. Um, and uh, they have not got many resources left to fight with. Now, that brings up another issue that, again, uh, was missed by the experts, or they weren't allowed to to uh, to uh, use it. Was the poor performance of the Russian Air Force? Now, on paper, the Russian Air Force was far superior to the Ukrainian Air Force and its air defenses. Uh, both sides were using a lot of the same equipment in in early 20, uh, 2022, and uh, the Russians never got going, never used that. Uh, that superiority in numbers. Now, the reason was there's twofold. It's not just that they they uh, uh, they were risk averse and what have you, but again, we found this out during the war. The Russians were still using with their artillery, with their air force. They were using this long planning cycle, where somebody at the front would request air support or firepower, and it would take you know a day or at least, you know, half a day, six to 12 hours before the, the request was answered. And that's because the Russians had never modernized uh, their, 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 their strike support uh, system. You know, in the United States, well, the Ukrainians, they can, they can respond in minutes. Uh, in the United States, where you still have to, you know, go back to Washington to check with the lawyers first, uh, it's slower than it was in Vietnam. But it shows you what you can do with modern weapons if you apply them 
efficiently. The Russians weren't. Now, the Russians also had a problem with maintenance. Uh, their, their modern aircraft, all their modern aircraft, including the MiG-29, were built to uh, Western standards. In other words, they can, they, can, they can fly a lot, and they can fly in peacetime for training, and in wartime, they can generate a lot of sorties. So that's a force multiplier. The problem is the Russians, uh, like a lot of NATO uh, countries after the 1990s, they didn't spend the money they had to on spare parts. They could keep the aircraft flying, but they couldn't generate, you know, they couldn't use them heavily in a combat situation. And this basically started uh, becoming a real problem for the Russians after the initial round of sanctions in 2014. Now, the, the, the harsher sanctions that were put in place in 2022 have made it even more difficult to make guided missiles or any sort of you know, a weapon that depends upon tech that the Russians don't manufacture themselves. I mean, we cover this regularly in, in strategy page about how dependent the Russians were on Ukraine for certain vital, you know, comp uh, military components. Like for uh, they, they got they did they could not build themselves in Russia uh, naval uh, warship high speed turbines, uh, which are which are an essential part of any modern warship. It allows you to accelerate very quickly. Uh, to combat speed, as it were, and uh, uh, whole classes of new ships that they had were nearly finished. They had to stop uh, in, until they got uh, the, uh, an alternate source of these turbines. Nobody else produced them. Even the Chinese were trying to secretly buy out, buy control of Motorsik. That's one of the major manufacturers of these uh, these engines, as well as helicopter engines and what have you. <laughs> the Ukrainians caught on to it in time. And you know, basically outlawed any foreign ownership of uh, of vital industries like like Motor Six. So you can see a lot of the success or failure of a military force depends on how well prepared they are to fight a sustained war. You, that's what the Ukrainians are asking for a lot more of these missiles. They got a lot more of the javelin or Saint Saint Javelina, as they called it. Uh, you know, before the war and early in the war, and that's what stopped the Russians dead. Uh, and of course, then it became apparent that a lot of these Russian troops were not well trained. They were one-year conscripts. Uh, they didn't know they were. They didn't know when uh, they were in Ukraine. And when they discovered it, they asked their officers, and their officers said, "Well, the Ukrainians won't fight. We're liberating them from Nazis." And of course, now it's basically a, a bad joke because the Russians are acting like Nazis. You know, in the occupied territories, the atrocities against civilians, um, and uh, the Russians are continuing to have enormous problems. In fact, I think the latest intel assessment was the Russians have no more than 200,000 troops in Crimea. That includes Crimea and, and Donbass. And the, uh, the Ukrainians have more than twice as many because they got a lot of volunteers uh, and, and, and the uh, the U.S. and the other NATO allies set up training programs. The British now have a training program where they'll take raw recruits and in 120 days turn them into, you know, uh, well-trained you know, recruits, which are a lot more effective and a lot more survivable than just throwing people in there with a few instructions. I mean, there are all sorts of anecdotes about how this, for example, some of the, uh, the American uh, advisors, who had worked with the Ukrainians before the war, they were pulled out once the invasion started, but they had given their cell phone numbers to some of the guys they were working with 
So one of these guys, they get like a shipment of uh, javelins, and he wasn't sure there was, seems to be a problem. So he says, well, I'll call up my friend. And he calls the guy out. The guy wakes up in this middle of the night, you know, the time difference. And he says, hey, it's me, Piotr, or whatever, from Ukraine. He says, you know, we got some more of these javelins, and we're having a problem. We thought you might help us with it. You know, because the manufacturer didn't send a, uh, you know, a helpline. Uh, but the, the, the soldiers, the American soldiers on the spot realized that they may have to be the helpline. Help that wasn't the first time that's happened. Anyway, the, the GI, uh, the special forces guy, you know, talked them through it. He, I, I forget all the details. He may have had to put the call on hold and call somebody else he knew, knew what it was. It wasn't a complicated problem. And they got those uh, systems working and more Russian tanks were blown up. But now they need the high Mars. They need the, the, the artillery. They need the, uh, uh, the guided uh, uh, shells. Uh, now, they've been getting, getting a lot of the javelins, mainly because uh, and the Americans especially, I think the other, other NATO countries too, have found out that a, a, a more effective solution is the uh, ATK fuse. This is a fuse, a large fuse is sticking to any 155-millimeter shell and basically, it turns it into a GPS-guided shell. Now, it's not as accurate as the javelin, but it's accurate enough. Uh, the Marines, for example, in Syria, I think in 2016, they had one battery at a time uh, in Syria providing direct support for the Kurds that we supported to basically take Raqqa City. That was the capital of, of uh, ISIS. And the, and the, uh, the ISIL said they were going to fight to the death. And the Kurds said, look, we cannot afford to take the kind of losses that take them on, you know, troop to troop. But if you can get us enough of those guided uh, shells, you know, we will find the targets. You will blow them up and we'll advance until we run into more opposition. And that worked. And like I say, it got, it got, it got so intense. I forget the number of shells were, uh, they used, but they wore out the barrel on, the, on several of their uh, M777, 105 millimeter, uh, you know, towed artillery. And that's the same artillery that they're using in, in Ukraine. I think the Ukrainians know about this. It was in the news, as it were. And I don't know if they've joked, hey, we'd like to wear out some tubes too, but we need those ATK fuses. But uh, I don't know what's holding that up. Uh, maybe they're afraid, the, some people are afraid the Ukrainians have become too successful. But, and that's another problem. A lot of NATO uh, officials are afraid to, you know, terminally tick off the Russians. But they, some they believe the Russians might go nuclear. Uh, that that, uh, that you know uh, Putin will do a Hitler. Like I say, the the Russians are not the Nazis, and uh, rather than, than than go down in defeat, he'll take Russia with him by trying to go nuclear. But then I pointed out that he he there are several steps. You know, there's six degrees of separation, so to speak, between him giving the order and some Russian launch officer. You know, uh, putting getting nuclear warheads on on a missile. And launching it, and from what I've heard, uh, there are not there are enough people in that six degrees of separation who will not do that. Uh, so it's a hollow, you know, it's a hollow threat. But some people are so risk averse or so intent on, you know, not uh, losing Russia, you know, forever. But they won't lose Russia. I mean, one thing that's coming out of Russia, by from Russians, is they're saying now they're playing the game of which among uh, Putin's loyal associates uh, is angling to replace him because the way it works in Russia, the guy who stages a coup, pushes you out of office is the guy you trust the most. And they do that on purpose. You know, it was like, well, they learned that in Stalin's times, you know, anybody who had any whiff of this loyalty, 
boom, got executed. You know, a lot of Russians working in the in the in the uh, in the Kremlin for Stalin, they used to like have a little party at the end of every day. They survived. You know, just a couple of you know vodkas to say, well, we survived one more day. Bars another day, and uh, so these are the characteristics that were known, but you know, nobody, a lot of people were afraid to use them, uh, and so it'll come as a big surprise if suddenly Putin's out of power, and the new government saying, look, you know, it was a mistake, pull all the troops out. You know, they're the only ones that can do that. They look good. They say, look, Putin made these mistakes. It's all on him. You know, it's like the secret speech that was made. You know, after. Uh, Stalin died unexpectedly in, in 1953, and, and it was supposed to be kept secret because they were basically admitting to the senior, you know, communist officials. But well, I knew this because Stalin was a SOB. You know, basically, you know, we won World War II in spite of him, not because of him. Bum bum bum. Well, that was hot stuff, and it got out. And a lot of Russians said a lot of Russians were disappointed because a lot of Russians, you know, drank the Kool Aid, as they say. But a lot of other Russians said, well, yeah, of course. And now we're doing the same thing all over again. And, and Russians, more than anybody else, understand, you know, the pattern. And since, and since uh, 2014, you know, Russians can still migrate legally. Uh, several million Russians have done just that. They've gotten out. And, uh, and they can still get in touch with the folks back home. And the first time they did it, you know, in, in, uh, you know uh, after the invasion, they were getting the party line. They said, that's, that's, what's not, that's not what's happening. You know, we're seeing pictures. You know, we're getting reports from, you know, reporters, our reporters, Western reporters who are allowed in, in Ukraine if they're willing to take the risk, and many of them were. And he says, you know, the, the invasion force is being trashed. And it was a couple of weeks later that any, even people in Russia who had believed the, you know, the, the false propaganda, the false news, the, the Putin people were putting out, realized, oh, my God. You know, my buddy in Great Britain or, you know, Germany or wherever they migrated to. A lot of these people were, had skills. They spoke a foreign language uh, and whatnot. And they could get jobs. There was, you know, there was always a need for people like that. Uh, but a lot of them would like to go back, but not until there's a new government. And, and, and a lot of Russians in Russia, stuck in Russia because the economy's tanking, poverty's increasing. We report on this. I mean, it's not a secret. International... Uh, you know, banking uh, uh, operations keep track of cash flows and what have you and and, and poverty levels. And uh, they're pretty accurate. They worked during the Cold War, even when there were fewer, you know, Western journalists uh, available. You know, it's in and out. You know, there's no secret pipeline, you know, for money going in or money going out. And uh, the Russians are hurting. And it, it, it gets to the point where it only take a little push and boom. You know, replacing the the tyrant uh, Putin, and uh, I don't know if they'll go back to having the, uh, the more or less fair elections, because that was a great disaster. You know, for 20 years now, Putin became president, and then he technically used his majority in in, in Duma in the in the Congress, uh, the Parliament, to change the laws and change the constitution, so he could stay in power basically indefinitely. A lot of Russians didn't like that. But he was a strong guy. He was an KGB guy. Uh, a lot of his uh, subordinates, not all of them, but a lot of them were former KGBers. And they had been on the outs before Putin came along. You know, they were unemployed. They, they, could, they didn't have the power. You know, one thing you got to realize was that 
organizations like the KGB and, and the and the Ukrainian version, which Zelensky recently did a house cleaning of, uh, because there were apparently a lot of people on the take in the SBU, I think it's called, uh, and that accounted for a lot of uh, early victories by the Russians, especially down in Kherson, you know, uh, north of Crimea. Uh, so a lot of them were either removed or basically you know, are, are about to be prosecuted. But in, in, in the KGB, nobody can arrest the KGB man except another KGB man. So they are literally above the law. If the organization, the KGB, is lawless, then, you know, these guys can basically do whatever they want. And I think they're going to change that in um, in Ukraine as well, because they knew the corruption is a big problem. In fact, that's how that's the main reason uh, why Zelensky got elected a nobody, you know, basically a a uh, a, law, a former lawyer, uh, a, a TV producer. And he starred in a he had starred in a in a comedy, so to speak, in which a, a it's an actor gets elected uh, president of Ukraine, you know. Uh, you know, life imitating art. And, uh, but uh, that became more and more true. But the, the uh, nationalism of the Ukrainians, the way they came together, once the, once the invasion began, you know, remember there was that famous quip early on in the war by Zelensky. Yeah, I think our president or whatever, our, our State Department call him, we can arrange to get you out. I says, I don't need a ride out, I need ammunition. And that basically was one of those, that's one of those phrases that, you know, basically uh, define uh, Ukrainian resistance because that galvanized a lot of, a lot of Ukrainians saying, well, what's he going to do? I mean, he was, he was, he was elected as a, as a, a breath of fresh air and he had been doing, making progress with the corruption. But, you know, once the war started and you, and Zelensky said, I'm here, I'll, 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 until they kill me or we win. And there have been many attempts to kill him. The Russians have used missiles. They sent in a bunch of Chechens who are the best fighters they have, and, and the Chechens got wiped out. Uh, so, you know, the Ukrainians have taken heavy casualties, not as heavy as the Russians, uh, but they're getting better training, they're getting better weapons. Zelensky is taking care of the Ukrainian forces, whereas Putin is not. He's looking for cannon fodder. And now he finds out he can't even pay, you know, uh, some of the troops, he's, you know, the veteran troops, uh, he's been paying to 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 uh, fight uh, to to basically provide some assault, reliable assault capability. He can't 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 afford to pay them, and these guys are true to the mercenary code. You don't get paid, we don't serve. Boom, we walk away. What are you going to do about it? And of course, you don't want to get into a feud with mercenaries, you know, whether they're on your payroll or not. And so, you know, the the whole problem is self-inflicted. You know, a lot of a lot of Western observers thought, and you know, especially even in Eastern Europe, they said the Russians won't be stupid enough to invade Ukraine. They've seen the the preparations the Ukrainians have been making. They think the Ukrainians are going to roll over. They think we're going to roll over. Well, now the Russians know that they invade a sovereign country again, one that used to be part of the Soviet Union. They're going to get resistance. The Chinese are learning a lot from this. Uh, and they're basically realizing that their their military is somewhat hollow. Uh, they're also having recruiting problems because of the economy and well, because of the the, the shrinking pot working age population and a lot of and there's no tradition of professional troops in China, uh, not a lot of them anyway. 
especially high tech, you know, recruiting people who get good civilian jobs. But now because China is having its its uh, its uh, real estate bubble collapse, we have a piece coming you know next week on that, uh, similar to what uh, Japan went through in the 1990s. Uh, it's runs on the bank, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but even before that, a lot of uh, unemployed uh, graduates were basically biting the bullet and looking for a government job, which means, you know, looking for an iron rice bowl. Iron rice bowl is more secure, but it's not a guarantee. You know, it's low paying and it's also not a guarantee that you're going to hang on to it. But that's one reason why the, the Chinese kept a lot of uh, state run industries, including state run banks, which are far more corrupt than the, uh, the, open, the free market ones. And so that, so the, Russian, the Chinese are learning what they can, but the Chinese tend to learn a lot better than the Russians do. So I, you know, although there's a lot of bluster about Taiwan, uh, it's been noted that the Taiwanese have gotten a lot more aggressive in defending themselves. They're building their own submarines. They pulled that up. That was, that was something even the Chinese didn't expect. But the first one, the first two, I think, are about ready to, in the next couple of years, they'll be ready for service, and there's eight in total. Uh, there's a, uh, <clears throat> they've been buying a lot more offensive weapons, uh, you know, ballistic missiles, uh, conventional warheads, and what have you. Uh, they've been dispersing their, uh, their military forces, airfields, you know, using caves and what have you, putting them in places that the Russian, the Chinese can't knock out immediately. And the Chinese are noticing that. And they're basically saying, well, how are we, well, how are we going to, you know, how can we fool other Chinese? If it's like the Russians, you know, we should understand the Ukrainians. They used to be us. Some of us all think like Ukrainians. We don't want to get Putin and what have you. Well, the Chinese are the same way. And a lot of Chinese are getting out. Uh, you know, again, it's the same cycle as repeating itself in, 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 uh, in China. Uh, that, you know, occurred in, uh, in uh, Russia. Now, when it occurred in uh, Japan, Japan, uh, you know, uh, uh, avoided a meltdown, but their basically their economy was stagnant for like 20 years. In some cases, it even declined. Um, and that allowed the South Koreans to basically catch up. And, and they're now punching way above their weight economically and militarily. Uh, but again, they were always faced with a real threat uh, from North Korea. And that'll basically motivate you. And we basically, you know, missed one of those basic historical rules. People in danger. Look at Israel. Look at any country. Uh, Sweden, Finland, you know. Uh, they basically built up forces designed to survive an initial strike and to fight back and to keep fighting. And now they realize that the Russians may go really crazy. They, didn't, they thought the Russians might have mellowed. Well, apparently they don't. And now they finally <laughs> finesse you know, uh, Turkey's, you know, attempt to extort yeah, various concessions from NATO uh, to allow them to move. But now they're coming in. And uh, now Russia has lost basically control of the, uh, the Baltic Sea. Uh, so it's nothing but lose, lose, lose uh, for the Russians. And, uh, and that's what's motivating, you know, motivating change, as it were, involuntary, so to speak, government change uh, in Russia. And that's when you can, you know, you heard here first, if you didn't hear it someplace else. Uh, but the official line is, you know, Putin can hold, hold on forever. He can make it a forever war. No, nothing lasts forever. Uh, you know, follow the money. And when there's no money or when the money is, you know, a lot less available, uh, you're on the losing side. And, and as long as we support the Ukrainians, 
basically, we, they need a lot of economic support, uh, but we're helping keep their, their, their uh, population alive. Uh, the Russians, interestingly, incidentally, did not destroy all the power plants. Uh, they tried, and, and the Ukrainians got the, the ones they, they hit with missiles back up within a week. Uh, because they run the railroads by electricity. They have some diesel engines, but they're old and, and they don't really fully replace the, uh, uh, the electric engines. Um, so the Russians realize that they're up against a force that may be smaller, but is far more motivated, is far more resourceful. You know, it's why the Israelis, uh, the, the, the Arabs fought several major wars against the Israelis until the 73 war. At which point they realized, well, you know, maybe we should find another, you know, way. And of course, eventually that led in, in, in 2020 to the Abraham Accords and, and literally establishing, you know, diplomatic and economic and military relations with Israel. That's been a big help. I mean, the, uh, the UAE, which was one of the first to step forward like that, they've gotten a lot of useful gear. And now they're getting access to um, its Iron Dome. Uh, they're going to integrate their uh, their air defenses. They have a lot of uh, patriots and, and fads and what have you. And with an integrated system, even if, if Saudis are not officially part of it, uh, they will have a, a better warning of an attack by the Ukrainian, the Ukrainians, the Iranians. Get my, bad, get my good guys and bad guys mixed up, and uh, they will be much better able to deal with it. Uh, the Iranians are now the big bad guy in the Middle East. Well, they actually have been for thousands of years. But uh, it's it's basically worse now because the country's been run by a, a, a religious dictatorship since the 1980s. That's another story. But Russia is not. Russia is basically, you know, was taken over by a bunch of former KGB who promised, you know, hey, we'll pay the pensioners, we'll make a few improvements, and then it's uh, then we're going to get paid, uh, and the hell with the country. And that doesn't work. It'll work in the short time but not in the long time, long term. Um, so there's a lot of lessons to be learned, but the main one is the Russians can't win unless NATO completely abandons uh, Ukraine. And the NATO, the new NATO states, Poland, the Baltic states, you know, Slovakia, Romania, they will not put up with that. And they made it very clear when they joined, you know, between 1999 and 205 NATO, that they were in it to keep the Russians out. And even the Germans said, yeah, we believe, and we believe it'll work. And then the Germans turned around and became totally dependent upon Russian natural gas, even though the, the Poles and everybody else in the East said, don't do that. You're making yourself vulnerable, and the Russians always will exploit a vulnerability. Uh, now the Russian, now the German politicians are, are dancing you know, around, you know, trying to find a way out of it because it's going to be a cold winter. Uh, now, other NATO countries... This isn't in the NATO Charter. It's a mutual defense, uh, you know, clause. But this is not a not a mutual, you know, save your butt from uh, making a mistake in procuring natural gas from the enemy clause. But you know, countries are are basically uh, coming to the aid of Germany. But they're going to suffer. You know, they 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 I think they have one nuclear plant they were shutting down. Now it's not being shut down. Uh, the French have basically told them, look, we never we have we depend more on nuclear power than any other country in, in Europe, and we're in better shape. And, and that was the way to go, and that's the way you should go. Uh, and uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of NATO countries that made wrong bets, as it were, on, on technology or on the Russians 
have a hard time admitting, well, we made a mistake, now we have to change. But there's nothing about a cold winter <laughs> or the threat of more Russian attacks to change your attitudes. So there it is. Nothing's changed. Oh, that's great. Um, we'll uh, be following this, and hopefully people that want more information, they'll visit the site. Uh, we've written a number of articles on these issues and uh, all good information packed in there. So we'll see you next time, Jim. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.